Hello, I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom with our host, the Reverend Joseph Hinchy and Lisa Fertini Campbell. Now here's Lisa. Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Welcome everyone to Duke and Altum. I'm Lisa Fortini Campbell with the Reverend Joseph Henshi of the Congregation of the Sacred Stigmata, and we are continuing our journey out into the deep, still exploring the richness of St. Mark's Gospel and description of the agony in Gethsemane. So hello, Father. Hello, Lisa, and again, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Alleluia. So in our last uh, installment, you were helping us to understand a great deal about the Messianic trial that St. Mark is describing, mm-hmm. the the sense that Christ had of abandonment by God, and, and certainly his rejection uh, from mm-hmm. people, culminating in his own very best friends <clears throat> sleeping mm-hmm. while he suffered. So what will you take us through today? Well, Lisa, today I thought we would look at, continue to look at Mark 14. Uh, we've already seen Gethsemane and uh, Temptation. Just, we see that recurringly. Then reflections on Jesus' agony. What was it? Well, it was he was struck by God and rejected by men. So we looked at that rather thoroughly. Now, this reflection, I'd like to bring out a doctrinal synthesis of all of this, like the introductory verses, 32 and following the agony itself, the prayer of Jesus, lessons from this prayer, the actual handing over of Jesus and the disciples. So it's still a very, very rich theme with deep content. Well, so it sounds like we have rather a lot to do today. So Mm -hmm. I'll uh, let you get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mary, seed of wisdom, pray for us. And St. Peter, please pray for us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Mark does not limit himself simply to offering an account of the agony. This is really, as scholars determine, a culmination of his entire theology. Mark is not just narrating a fact, but he's trying to render a valuable lesson for the early church and readers down through the centuries to you and to me as we read this today. So in the very first place, what Mark is trying to do is to show that this episode is a salvific action of God the Father. Repeatedly, he brings out the fact that all of this simply had to be. Now look at the times he brings that out, this, this necessity. 9.12, 8.31, 14.21, and 49. Jesus is to be handed over, given up for our offenses, as we read in Isaiah 53. So Jesus certainly is conscious here that this is indeed the will of God, the very reason why he came, as is found in 1045 of of, uh, Mark. He knows that only by his voluntary acceptance will this activity on the part of the Father have its full effect. It is only in total conformity with the will of the Father 
can Jesus show himself to be Messiah? And this is precisely what we try to do in our Christian life. There is a conformation, a configuration of our lives to Christ through the sacrament of baptism. The Eucharist nourishes this, confirmation strengthens this, anointing heals this, on and on again. This is the basic idea to put on the mind of Christ Jesus, which means to do the will of the Father. Uh, The Father had decided to send a suffering servant, not some triumphant monarch like King David to conquer the powers of darkness, but a weak man who fell under the heavy weight of this trial. There is a kind of a contrast here between the weakness of Jesus and the flesh of the disciples. Both are put to the test. For the disciples, this was a test of faith. And because he couldn't do miracles anymore and he wasn't saying wise things anymore, they lost faith and ran away. But Jesus, this was the mysterious messianic trial which he, which he passed with the highest grades. Jesus so, is so identified with his disciples that he shares with them all this terrible weakness and inability on their own to overcome the ordeal or the trial without the abiding help of the Father. So let's begin looking at the text as they stand, the first two or three, verses 32 and 33a, the beginning. They came to a small estate called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Stay here while I pray. Then he took Peter and James and John with him. Mm. Now, I'm sure we perhaps read that or heard it read or seen it different times, And it doesn't seem to say an awful lot. Well, there are a few things we might look at. First of all, they came to a small estate called Gethsemane. And this verse is connected with verse 26 just above. After supper and psalms had been sung, they left for the Mount of Olives. And Jesus takes three of his disciples. Of course, three is a representative of the entire college. Another of Mark's characteristics is that he intends to identify all those who are present as though they were going to be set aside as witnesses. A few examples of this prior to Gethsemane are found in chapter 5 and again in chapter 9 and 13. And then the emphasis on Gethsemane, as we have seen, he gives the name of the place where this is going to happen. Then the two or three witnesses seem to come all the way back from Deuteronomy 19. The evidence of three, or at least two witnesses, is necessary to sustain sustain the charge. That's an old requirement of the law. Deuteronomy 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5, 19. Now, all of a sudden, verses 33 on, the agony. A sudden fear came over him and great distress. And he said to them, My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Wait here and keep awake. So it's called fear, it's called distress, it's called sorrowful to the point of death. What are all these things, these these sentiments that Jesus is feeling? His soul is sorrowful unto death. This comes from Psalm 42, verse 6. You heard my petition when I called to you for help. O Lord God, love the Lord your God, all you devout. Be strong, let your heart be bold, all you who hope in God. 
or Isaiah 31, 22, I have been snatched out of your sight, O Lord. The anguish is a rather disturbing relationship between God and some individual, as is true in Psalms 42 and the early part of 42. Meaning, this whoever wrote 42 seems to have been in, in exile and couldn't get home. And he's yearning to go home with a terrible sense of homesickness. So the verb came over him. This is far more emphatic than to say he began. This would seem to indicate the beginning of a great drama. Sudden storm overcame them, or the storm on the lake overcame them. There's a great intensification of suffering here in the soul of Jesus. You know what it reminds me of, too, is the story <clears throat> of the Annunciation. Does not the Holy Spirit come over Mary? Mm-hmm. But, of course, in that sense, it's mm-hmm. for a joyful mm-hmm. purpose, mm-hmm. In, in, uh, joyful in her mm-hmm. birth, but, of course, Christ mm-hmm. dies in the end. So perhaps that coming mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. is a not just ominous, but is an indication yeah. of the Holy Spirit at work. That's right. It's total and all enveloping. Ah. This is something that just takes over the scene now. Uh, so this culmination will, in Luke will be a sweat of blood. So the spirit of these verses is inspired from the Psalms. And as we've seen so many times, the drama has begun. Some would see the drama this way. The first would be, from Luke 14 to 34 up to 15:32, the arrest and Jesus on the cross. The whole section would be the actions of human being, human beings against him. But Gethsemane shows that Jesus is struggling inside, within, something about the plan of the Father. This is the famous hour. This is the chalice, the cup. My hour has not yet come. It has come here. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus drinks the chalice, the hour is truly reached and, re- reached and he is handed over. This, this is into the hands of sinners. In this hour, messianic destiny reaches its culmination. This is the sudden fear and great distress that comes over him precisely at that instant. So long with fear that would envelop any human being at such a moment, There's beyond and above all of this the great drama of redemption that is unfolding. It is now happening. So the exceptional value or nature of his anguish surpasses the anguish and fear of so many martyrs would not come solely from the reality of what he was facing. Like we say, there were many martyrs that died more heroically, even Socrates, who was a non-believer in Christ. But they were not the redeemers of the world. Mm-hmm. So their destiny certainly is not messianic. They were heroes. They are paradigmatic personalities. They'll always be remembered. Yes. Not to give in to human fa- fear and f- be afraid to say what you know is right, but you'd rather say something that people like to hear. This may be the difference between a statesman and a politician. Mm-hmm. A politician will always say what you like so he can be elected. But a statesman tells you what you need to hear. So the ordeal is simply this, that God, he is struck by God and rejected by humanity, as we have seen earlier. But he has come to take away the sins of the world. Many interpreters, for example, that Vincent Taylor we mentioned earlier, Jesus is in full consciousness of being the promised suffering servant of God. 
in Isaiah 53. It is only in the reality of this consciousness can the terrible agony begin to be grasped. He wasn't just facing a firing squad or a scourging. Many people did that, like Mutiny on the Bounty and many other such Mm -hmm. films. They would tie somebody to the mast and and scourge them publicly to, to be a lesson to the others. And then the prayer, the prayer of Jesus. Now listen to this. Abba, if it's possible, let this hour pass. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me, but let it be as you and not as I would have it. That is, that was tickles at the heartstrings of anybody yes, who would yes, read this prayerfully. Yes. Then the prostration. Going on a little further, he threw himself onto the ground. This emphasizes exhaustion, helplessness, and who knows, maybe adoration as mm-hmm. we prostrate before ordination and, and before religious uh, consecration. So Jesus presents himself as being before the merciful omnipotence of the Father in a state of total dependence, seeking his intervention. And then he prayed. The first part of Jesus' prayer is presented indirectly. Then the well-known direct profession of faith, everything is possible to God. The term Abba, as is well known, may be also used by those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 4, 6, and it appears nowhere else. Mm -hmm. So if, and this is a, a guess, Peter is reflected here by Mark, and Peter was present in the garden and heard the word Abba, which would have been very unusual for any pious Jew praying to the creator of heaven and earth, <clears throat> this would be a very significant, and it's a counterpart of the one who has been called, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He's the most beloved, the only begotten, agapetos, and, uh, <clears throat> I forget the other one, <laughs> agapetos and uh, monogenes, the uh. only begotten, the beloved sent into his vineyard, as we read in Mark twelve six. So the term goes beyond messianic consciousness, but implies the divine dignity of Jesus Christ. John's Gospel will express this consciousness of Jesus far more. For example, John 13 and 1 and so on. However, it is said by many scholars that the Gospel of Mark is the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And all these are important designations. So in Gethsemane, it's the Son of God who is presented in the fulfillment of this messianic mission. He appears in terrible anguish, overwhelmed with sadness and powerlessness. This is not because of the dread of losing his own skin, if to put it in co- contemporary terms. He appears in absolutely incapable of sustaining such a task. This is the total kenosis of the other famous word, Katabasis, his total self-emptying. And he prays honestly and objectively, if it's possible, let this chalice pass. But then he added immediately, if it were possible, this hour might pass. Take this cup from me, but let it be as you and not I would have it. So here the hour and the cup come together. This is the moment in which the great work of redemption culminates with the passion, death, to be followed by the resurrection and ascension. 
So very often we truncate this. We separate passion and death and separate resurrection and ascension, whereas passion to ascension are one paschal mystery. And that's called the integral pastoral mystery. We are very often dividing and giving parts of it. And you'd almost think with this kind of a presentation that Gethsemane is a unit in itself. It's not. It's preparatory for this is part of the passion that then culminates on Calvary and then is terminated in the resurrection and eventually in the ascension. There's a great discussion. Did the ascension happen? Was it 40 days after after resurrection or more immediate or longer? All of these questions would come if we ever take up the spirituality of Holy Week. That would be a whole other long discussion. Maybe someday we could do that, the spirituality of Holy Week. It's a real long discussion. And then he prayed, if it were possible, this hour might pass him by, pass him by, take this cup from me, but not as I, but as you would have it. So here we have the hour and the cup and the chalice all coming together, these symbols or these metaphors or whatever they are of the terrible destiny that Jesus had to suffer in our place as our substitute. So the plea of Jesus here is not merely a cry of a man who realizes he's trapped and he can do nothing in the face of terrible danger, suffering, and certainly sure death. The prayer implies rather that Jesus, in the fullness of his human nature, is struggling with a divine plan that overwhelms him. This is Christology at its height. This enormous love and union that Jesus has with his Father, and then this awful experience of suffering. What is this? And that is the mystery of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. And so this is the a, a couple of things that occur to me as you're talking is that that sense that you describe of Christ having known all along what would happen and then still he has this monumental struggle is a is a small thing. Um, I, I think I know I'm mortal. I know that someday I will get a diagnosis of something that is fatal. But the moment that that happens, I'm sure I will not be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Or you think, I think about people who have had children. They've seen children all their lives. The minute they know they're going to have a baby, they read, they prepare, they talk to other people. And, and every mother will tell you she's not prepared at all mm-hmm. for exactly what mm-hmm. happens in the birth and mm-hmm. what follows so the the experience of something is different than mm-hmm. the anticipation of it, mm-hmm. and perhaps that had something to do with Christ as Certainly. well. Certainly, I think in our own case, we can have the great hope in God's grace. We will never be tried beyond our strength, never be tested be beyond what we uh, can endure. I remember those wonderful old Jesuit uh, retreat masters of my student years, uh, sixty-five years ago. When they would Many of tell them. us, don't pray for a lighter cross, but pray like Ignatius for stronger, stronger shoulders. shoulders right. <laughs> and I think there's great truth well, then, in that. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is that so many of the prayers, as, as I just scan mm. my mind back over the life of Christ, he is... Um, he talks of unity with the Father. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the Father sent me. If you see me, mm-hmm. you see the Father. Mm-hmm. My Father and I are doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I There is a sense of unity. Mm-hmm. But in this prayer in Gethsemane, mm-hmm. there's an awareness of separation. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe your will, my will, or distinction. Be a better yeah, word. distinction, yeah. that mm-hmm. there's a divergence, yeah. mm-hmm. not as my will, That's but right. thy will. Mm-hmm. And so in giving up that last bit of mm-hmm. distinction, then mm-hmm. he's capable of making the full kenosis, That's as right. you described. This is it. I think, too, Lisa, we can look at uh, remarkable statistics. The rare times that in the Gospels Jesus is called Father, maybe 20 times in any, any one of the synoptics, whereas in John it's close to 100, uh-huh. 100 times. But nowhere does anyone ever call Jesus God, Abba, yeah. only Jesus, only here in Gethsemane. Yeah. So this is certainly a revelation of prayer. We are invited and called and sacramentally assisted to bring about that union. I and the Father are one. We won't be that physically, but we do participate in the oneness. As we read in Second Peter, one four, grace is a participation in the divine nature. So we do share in this to some extent. And what we want to do is to deepen this participation, metaphysical participation, into the reality of our mentality and the way we live. So earlier, yeah, the powers of darkness had employed the services of one close to Jesus, Judas, to betray him, who gave him up uh, to carry out the Father's plan. Here there's an infinite excess of divine love, an abysmal excess of human degradation, and they meet here. Mm-hmm. The endless divine love and the planning of this extraordinary, difficult uh, uh, happening in the life of Christ. Jesus does refer to Peter with Satan's name in 832, here, though, Mark's interest is not Satan, but in the situation of Jesus and the Father's plan. This is a unique presentation, probably the main lesson that Mark gives to us. Not as I, but as you would have it, O Lord. And this would be the prayer. If we ever do get bad news from a medical test, we try as best we can to accept, to work out things and so on. But to have maybe the example of Gethsemane would be nice if I didn't have to go through this, but God's will be done. This is what's going to get me to heaven. So it might not be what I would want. Sometimes we speak of premature deaths. Well, they may be pre- they are premature for us if we love these people. But in the plan of God, as I think he would take us at the best possible time for his plan to be worked out. At any rate, the situation of Jesus here is quite similar to that described in Hebrews 5.7. And this is often used, this Hebrews, as a possible reference to Gethsemane. It does offer us a pretty good insight. So this is the great high priest. During his life on earth, Jesus offered a prayer and entreaty, aloud and in silent tears, to the one who had the power to save him out of death. Then the text also then adds, he became, for all who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. This is the perfection of his, excuse me, the perfection of his priesthood, and the bringing to fulfillment of the Father's plan. Also in Mark, Jesus's vigilance, adhering to God in prayer, obtained for him from the Father the ability, the power, to formulate in the weakness of the moment his voluntary acceptance in the full, and abandonment of self to the Father's will. Let it be as you and not I would have it. In this, Jesus accepts his full messianic mission. The it 
means totality, as you, not as I would have it, the totality of the Father's plan. Any one of us might, like a Philadelphia lawyer, say, let's talk this over. Could we whittle this down a little bit or maybe up the ante or make it a little easy and so on. But all here means totality of the Father's plan, the expression of the eternal will of God. The prayer of Jesus here is heard. And this serves, he serves the church here as the great model of prayer. And the ultimate response of Jesus to the request is, Lord, teach us how to pray. Mm. He does that by letting us witness Gethsemane. It's very interesting, too, when Pope Paul wrote his beautiful Canticum Laudis, which was the renewal of the old Roman breviary to the modern liturgy, liturgy of ours. <clears throat> Pope Paul, in his introductory magnificent contemplation on the prayer of Jesus, calls Jesus the great model of prayer and how the Church is invited to continue that prayer through the centuries by this Canticum Laudis, by this great canticle of praise which we offer in the, in the prayer of the Church. Any prayer does this, the liturgical prayer in a special way, because this joins the Church, male, female, priest and lay, all of us are together in this prayer. <clears throat> so the actual hearing of the prayer does not appear here as clearly. However, throughout the entire passion scene, always interspersed with this awful sense of abandonment, Jesus keeps in contact with his Father, the seven last words. He's praying much of this time. Cardinal Ratzinger, in his beautiful book, The Pierced One, he says Jesus was conceived in prayer. He was born in the prayer of the angels singing in the sky. He lived in prayer, going off to the mountains alone to pray. And in Gethsemane, he's assisted in this awful, awful moment. Uh, it's assisted to let this, to continue this prayer. So you and I join in the prayer of Christ in our own prayers, especially those at Mass and also those in the liturgy of the hours. So the attitude of Jesus, the attitude, the, the mindset is one of continual invocation. And this was asking Ratzinger's idea. He, his entire life is immersed in prayer, uh, asking for assistance and this intimate adherence to the Father. All of this culminates here and will end sublimely on Calvary. The value of this prayer is beyond price. It's a prayer of Jesus and expresses his intimate union with the Father. This is an expression of his apostolic personal messianic mission. And it's all summarized in the extraordinary revelation of the very intimate nature of God himself as Jesus gives his life for the salvation of the world in expiation. All of this is much more a revelation of love. Mm -hmm. At this terrible moment, what would you do? I, I was so deeply impressed of those poor people of 9-11 yes. and caught yes. in, in uh, making their last call home. And how many of them said, I love you. Right. I mean, it's an extraordinary witness of the depths of human beings. To me, it was a very, very positive sign. We used to say in the World War Two, and there might have even been a song or something, that there were no atheists in the foxhole. And a stigmatine confrere of mine, Father Cornelio Fabro, great existentialist philosopher, great student of St. Thomas and Kierkegaard, and then also of Gemma Galgani, uh, said, 
that atheism needs to be learned. We're not born atheists. There's a primordial, fundamental reality in us, like at moments of great joy or pleasure, as well as in great agony. Very often, automatically, we say the God. Now, say the name of God. Others may have another interpretation of all of that, but it seems to me somewhat remarkable that deep within us there's this inclination toward the divinity. St. Thomas put it in much more beautiful words. He said that every human nature is naturally capable of God. In other words, when we receive grace, that's not violence. That's a capacity we had that was passive and had to be activated by a new act of creation, which we call redemption. When the flow of grace comes into us, that is a new act of creation. Well, could I put it maybe another way, too, that that we are all born with the capacity of awe and astonishment, mm-hmm. and that when we, all of us, have had mm-hmm. experiences of astonishment, mm-hmm. and that is a, a time in our lives when we are out of ourselves mm-hmm. in just carried away mm-hmm. by the immensity of something, the beauty of something, the emotion of something. And that awe is a place where God whispers, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Well, as I've mentioned a few times, Lisa, my journey to uh, Italy on an old Italian boat in the fall of 1952 and being out on the back of the boat and looking out at the night sky, it was literally breathtaking. It was just... There was no other lights. The boat, I was at the back of the boat, so there were no lights out there, but this marvelous canopy and of, of beautiful stars. Or in this age of eclipses, that night I saw the full lunar eclipse over the Colosseum. When oh. you talk about postcards, <laughs> if that ever could have been captured, it was un, unforgettable. Then the mountains, the mountains of the Italian Alps, the Dolomiti. Good Lord, and Sunday mornings there in the quiet, hearing the church bells ringing all over. I remember in the Marian year of 1954, every Saturday everybody was invited to the closest church to make a holy hour Saturday afternoon. So we were staying in this little village high in the mountains called Molosco di Fondo in Valdinon, way up in northern Italy, not far from Valsugana. But these were unforgettable uh, visions and scenes. and So uh, there is something deep within us, as you say, open to wonderment and um, pride and um, a beautiful surprise, or even a night storm in the mountains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thunder and the lightning could put the fear of God into you. So it would not be enough to say that in this whole scene, it's the Father who is acting. We have to also say, we have here a faithful servant willingly making the gift of his own life in fulfillment of the prophecy of centuries. He offers his life in atonement so he will see his heirs and through him what the Lord God wishes will be done. That's Isaiah 53.10. His life is an atonement, asham. Mm -hmm. It's atonement, this oblation, total oblation. So in this revelation, it's not the sacrifice alone. We can even often say, and I do myself glibly, one of the strongest signs of love is self-sacrifice. What does the other wish? Or what would be best for the other? Well, it's not the sacrifice alone that is so demanding. What is needed is this interior submission 
this abandonment to God that Jesus has realized in the sacrificial act, or maybe to put it in another way, this awful moment of anguish as it is depicted and described so skillfully by these believing evangelists gives us some insight into God's love expressed to us as an immolation, as a, as a, as a sacrifice. In this terrible hour, by drinking this bitter chalice, the scriptures are fulfilled. The will of the Father is being carried out. Jesus shows himself to be the real Messiah, the one promised through the centuries, one who had come. So all of these circumstances and just the context itself offer so much insight into the underlying reason Mark wrote this, this scene. His scope was precisely to describe this terribly dark and awesome event the will of life, the will of God being fulfilled in the salvation of the world. The terrible struggle in the prayer of Jesus was not something that could ever be passed, glossed over for fear maybe of scandalizing other generations. Well, we saw that even in the fathers. Some of them never touched this point because of the, the dangers of opening the gates to Arianism, where Jesus was more than us but less than the Father. This is a very humbling way of, of dying. In fact, St. Thomas uses it as an objection for the Incarnation. Is Jesus the Son of God? And he would say, well, it seems no, because he cried, he fell under his cross, he bled, he suffered, and he died. These are not godly actions. But to get across what love means to people, some people love ice cream, some people love spaghetti, and Thomas would tell us the more we love it, the less there is. Mm-hmm. Charlie Brown loved the world, but he couldn't stand people. <laughs> well, this tells us what love is. This trembling and struggling and giving up his life willingly for the salvation of the world. So Gethsemane is not a scandal. It's a tremendous act of heroism. It's not stupidity when you know the context. The Almighty God could have used... As he created, he could have uncreated. Of course. He could have made a collision in the Milky Way or mm-hmm. given the sun less, less oil to, to run for 10 billion years. That famous uh, joke of uh, Alex Filipenko, this, the astronomer of uh, California, in his conferences would say that the sun, his, its fuel is half gone. Mm-hmm. And there's only 5 billion years left. So each a dessert for, dessert for us because life is uncertain. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Gethsemane is not a scandal. It, it's not a stumbling block. This is carrying redemption to the full. The offer to come down off the cross is merely the continuation of his prayer of Gethsemane. Let it be as you will and not I. So Jesus seals his decision here with a free act of will to be abandoned to the Father. The Our Father is lived here fully. It is also his choice to pour out blood for the many. Now this again means for everyone because it's a quote from Isaiah 53. In this profound prayer, the acceptance of the cup is total. This complete self-giving in Gethsemane is but a glimpse of the eternal procession from the Father. So one of the great struggles of our lives is the lack of totality. Mm-hmm. We, we tend toward mediocrity, or none of us has reached, maybe even intellectually, 
what we still could be if sure. we can be open to truth and open to new ideas and so on. So a few lessons from Gethsemane could not be codified or synthesized very easily. But this opens the final chapter in the mystery of redemption. Everything has led to this drinking of the cup. It's like at the end of the meal, you take one more gulp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one more gulp and beyond, one for the road. This is the moment of truth in the life of human nature. All of one's interior strength projects a conception of life that all peaks here. The moment prior to death is time of grace, experience in life with repeated acts of abandonment. This is the time for the dedicated prayer in the life of Jesus. So the mystery behind Gethsemane, Jesus had already on three separate occasions anticipated the meaning of his death. This is throughout John's, um, uh, Mark's Gospel. The prayer of Gethsemane also projects forward to that terrible moment on the cross and the prayer found in John. That piercing of the side even after he was dead and the outpouring of the blood and the water so inspired St. Augustine that he saw here the sacraments of baptism and also Eucharist. Jesus is presented in the deep anguish of the human soul. He asks whether he should ask his father, he wonders whether he should ask his father to be saved from this. Was the entire reason though why he came, as we read in John 12. Father, glorify your name. This is why I came. And this John 12, 27 and 13, 21 and John seem to hint at Gethsemane. They don't mention it, but hint at it. The prayer brings out so many aspects of God's love for his people. Therefore, by reflecting on these verses of the mystery of Gethsemane, a deeper insight into the overall mystery of the passion and death of the Lord comes to the fore. Jesus' self-offering is his willful acceptance of the Father's project. So often as spiritual directors, people say, what should I do to become holy? Mm -hmm. Well, it may not be so much... Doing as accepting. As accepting. We yeah. have limited strength, limited ability, endless in our desires, but very limited time uh, that we have. So <clears throat> it seems one of the great lessons here is acceptance. Acceptance. Well, and you know, you think about all of those sacrificial animals over how many millennia bulls, goats, sheep, lambs. They didn't. They don't have consciousness the way we do, mm. and so they weren't what they didn't have an experience like mm. Christ mm. did. But their acceptance was total. That's right, and they are like the lamb. The lamb, we often, mm-hmm. and they are all preparations. Leviticus is a great preparation for Hebrews. The, the study of the sacrifices of ancient Israel, lived by the great high priest of mercy, Jesus Christ. So they do. They help us to understand the immolation of the lamb, the, the lamb who becomes a shepherd in the apocalypse by this extraordinary paschal metamorphosis. Well, in both Jesus' case and Mary's case, they both gave up totally their own will. Mm-hmm. And uh, not be it done to me according mm-hmm. to your will. Be where, Wherever it takes me, wherever mm-hmm. it goes, it's I okay. Think- we would find agreement here with many Mariologists, so they would agree with us that real holiness is acceptance. Is acceptance. To accept the inevitability of some things and to do what we can to make life and the world better 
for others because we came this way. Well, it's like the Buddhists say that all suffering is the discrepancy between expectations and reality, <laughs> and that mm. acceptance mm-hmm. is a lack of suffering, peacefulness. Mm-hmm. It comes from the acceptance sure. of what it of what is, and in yeah. our idea, what it mm-hmm. is is all provided by God. Surely. In the beautiful teaching of Agentes in the Second Vatican Council, it speaks of these great wisdom traditions that mm-hmm. have peaked, uh, peaked the mind of human beings for millennia. They're called seeds of the gospel. Yes. It's a very beautiful expression that they really, really make you think. And Anyway, <clears throat> so there can be hardly any doubt that Jesus' real humanity understood what he was doing. The prayer brings out so many aspects of the mystery of God himself and his plan of salvation. It's interesting, but in De Verbum, that speaks of divine revelation in Vatican II, it says the object of divine revelation is twofold, God himself and his plan. And here we find both of these being described, being revealed in a very extraordinary situation. Co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial Jesus praying to his Father to save him terrible fate. So Jesus' self-offering is his acceptance of the Father's plan. So after the, the richness of these verses 32 and following, now we'll take a look at the prayer itself in these texts as they unfold here for us. The prayer is much like that of other great mediators. For example, Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verses 32 and following, 34. That is a prayer of Moses. And it's a very beautiful prayer. As death approaches, the great mediators often offer their lives for their people. Mark's account is most realistic in his presentation of Jesus in fear and trembling, profoundly anguished and afraid. Mark and Luke will slightly shift this to the emphasis on the human passions of Jesus, which reveal to such an extent the mystery of redemption. But Jesus' prayer is an extraordinary act of abandonment here, first perhaps expressed by Mary, let it be done according to your word. She said that to the angel, then it was her message at Cana with the servants, you do whatever he tells you. This is repeated in Jesus' lesson on prayer. He taught the Our Father, and here in Gethsemane he lived it. So the great mystery or prayer of Gethsemane is the existential living of the Our Father. So this is really a fervent prayer directed to the Father. This prayer of Jesus, it was present, the loving confidence and trust and belief that God the Father can do anything. Great love for his Father. <clears throat> this idea of possibility is already present in Mark's Gospel, as we read in Mark 10 and again in Mark 11. Everything is possible to God, that everything then is possible to one who believes. So these are helpful to St. Thomas Aquinas when he described the qualities of hope, future, good, difficult, but possible. Difficulty can lead to discouragement, but it's the mercy of God, as we read in Psalm 103, the ways of God are further apart than the ground is from the sky or the east is from the west. Well, in that idea that all things are possible to one who has enough faith, we mm. can go back again to mm. Peter walking on the water. Mm. 
and he was doing something that mm. would ordinarily mm. be absolutely impossible mm. for human beings. But he mm. does it yeah. in faith, and then he, he sinks when he loses it. That's it. So we might get a great lesson from that, Lisa. We're in the bark of Peter, and there's a storm on the lake, a serious storm on the lake, and maybe many, many have left, and it's not for us to judge, but they tell us in some statistics that the biggest Christian group in the United States is ex-Catholics. Mm-hmm. Well, as we pray for their return, and as we do penance that they might come back for the, the sins of the church, whatever responsibility we may have, and ponder this prayer of, of Christ, that he wants to hand his life over to God, as did Mary in her fiat. So this is a prayer of enormous fidelity. The themes that dominate are the hour, the cup, the chalice, the ultimate choice, which is the Father's will. Jesus chooses again freely his unity and solidarity with the Heavenly Father, making known his Father's infinite horror for sin. The Father sent him to do this, and the infinite love for the sinner. Gethsemane brings us to the depths of the mystery of sin, as St. Thomas again says so beautifully, God loved far more the, the Son's redemption he hated, than he hated the, our sins that caused it. So <clears throat> this is a great consoling lesson full of mystery, but certainly piques the imagination and the desire to know, to read further. How does it all end? And how does it, well, it ends in the resurrection and the ascension. Well, what is the lesson here? Simple the repeated appeal of Jesus to be vigilant and to pray. Only prayer now enables one to be docile to what's going to happen, the action of the Father. It withdraws human beings from their innate weakness of the flesh. Prayer lifts one to another level, a greater availability and grasp of the divine will. There's a very interesting word often used by St. Thomas Aquinas, connaturality. Yes. Color is connatural to the human eye. It's something we can, the, the eye is made to see color with the assistance of light. But grace makes us connatural to the Trinity because it's a share in the nature of God, the very nature of God. Or maybe a more bland example is a computer. A computer is just a little metal box nothing happens. Plug it in and somebody who knows how to work, it opens up an entire, entire universe. So this is what prayer seems to do, this sense of connaturality, connecting us. That's like plugging in the computer, connecting us to this infinite abyss of God's mercy and pardon and forgiveness. So this is the lesson for all times. And there, there are these insights that come to us. In this prayer of Jesus, is concentrated all the power and decision of his freely chosen fidelity and obedience to the Father. Faith is obedience. And those of us born in a nation founded on the Declaration of Independence find obedience difficult. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we are more so than others. Like they used to say that in all the countries of the world, a red light means stop. You have to stop. But in Italy, it's a suggestion. <laughs> Speed up if there's no one around. <laughs> and with all due regard to the Romans, I love them all. So these insights, like the Christological one, we've seen repeatedly that Mark's emphasis is on, uh, on the Christological element. 
in Jesus, in his prayer, is concentrated all the power and decision of his truly, his freely chosen fidelity. And ecclesially, this is what makes the church a gathering of people around the word of God. Whether we're out in the desert following the fire at night, whether we're like the apostles following the Son of Man who has nowhere to lay his head, or whether we are now following the light of the God's word, the lamp under our feet, trying to get through the exodus of our own times in life. Well, what you're describing here, too, it helps me to understand something that um, years ago confused me about the difference between docility and passivity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's many, many times we think about obedience and <clears throat> it being just, then we just become passive, mm-hmm. as the kids say these days, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's going on here. Docility mm-hmm. is is an awareness of of a subordination mm-hmm. to a greater plan mm-hmm. and a willingness to walk with it mm-hmm. in um, in in faith and acceptance. Mm-hmm. So that's not passive. No. I don't know how many former students of Father Gary Goulagrand still exist, but I think my class was one of the last that had him full-time. I was ordained in 1956, so I think he died in February of 1963. But uh, anyway, he always would speak of virtus start in medio. So on the one hand, you have passivity. the other hand, you have Pelagianism. High up in the mountains, you have docility. It's much like hope. On the left, you have presumption. On the right, you have despair. And up in the mountains, this is a future good. Difficult, but possible. So it's always this median position, not the median of mediocrity, but the median of inspiration. High as a beacon in the, on the hill, let your light shine before men. This is what shines out to each and every one of us. Finally, the handing over. <clears throat> you can sleep now. Take your rest. It's all over. The hour has come, and the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is really a sad scene. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Get, go back to bed. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna. I have to go now. Um, the long-awaited and terribly feared moment, this dreaded time, in which God would realize the salvation of the world by fulfilling far beyond all possible dreams, the typology, Old Testament typology involving persons, places, and things. Whoever would have thought that the Lamb of God in the Book of Exodus would end up as the second person of the Most Blessed Trinity? Or that those uh, uh, oblation of those thousands of bullocks and lambs and scapegoats would end up in the one great sacrifice of the second person of the Blessed Trinity in his human nature. It really is fascinating. But the awful time is here. By Jesus' abandonment, his messianic ministry and mission are reaching their culmination. But Father and Son are presented most active in all this. God the Father does not spare his only Son. We find this in Romans 8.32, and we find it in John 3.16. God so loved the world, he offered up his Son. Or God so loved the world, he did not spare his only Son. And that's on the one side. And then Jesus perseveres in his total acceptance of the Father's will. So with the title, The Son of Man, being handed over, 
Many interpreters believe that this is simply the fulfillment of Daniel, Daniel 7, and of course Isaiah 53. The Son of Man will be delivered, as we read in Mark 9.31, into the hands of men, and the evidence shift from men to sinners. So the use of this passive form, he will be handed over, is found repeatedly in these... Again, we have the messianic... Um, or the messianic happening here, showing the powerlessness that has been seen here. For example, Mark 10.33. We're going up now to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will hand him over. That's Mark 10.33. The Son of Man is going now to his fate. Mark 14-21 is a very clear indication he knew what was going on. On close analysis, though, the presence of the Father is more than implicit. He's here all the time. The presence is noted, as we've seen so many times, in the Old Testament passages quoted here, referring to God striking the shepherd. That's Mark 14.27, quoting, of course, um, Zechariah 13. And the allusion to the fulfillment of the Scriptures, Mark 14.49. The references in the Psalms also shed much light here. So the active form of this same reality is found in the scene of the suffering servant. The Lord God burdened him with the sin of all of us. So again, this is one of those messianic happenings. The Lord God has been pleased to crush him with suffering. He let himself be taken for a sinner. Jesus gets into the act. He lets himself be handed over into the hands of sinners. Who are these sinners? Well, all those who refuse belief, like Judas, the unfaithful disciple, went over and he looked for a way to betray him. The priests and the scribes and the elders, all of these, who handed him over in a sinful manner. The sinners seems to refer not only to non-believers, but to all in the judgments of the times who don't follow God's word. It means those who will not accept Jesus. They, they do think he might have a message, but they give up an act of life of sin or whatever, so they refuse to accept him. It would seem that this would be an implication of the Gethsemane scene, those opposed to God, and this sense Jesus would soon be struck by God and rejected by humanity. So it's an enormously rich theme, and you can see we're still not finished here with old Mark, but we're getting near the end, but this is a remarkable passage. On a deeper analysis, it is seen also that Jesus is not absolutely powerless. He chooses freely to go through with this. He could have run away <clears throat> like the apostles did. He could have maybe got away in the night, escaped somehow, the Father works out a plan of salvation, and the Son totally carries it out. Can we summarize these rich passages? Again, I say it's very hard to do so. I've been trying for five lectures, and it's still an amazing mystery. So a summary would be, this is an int and very evident Christological passage. The whole passage, Jesus refers to his Father with the familiar Abba, and he is called the Son. There is here the indication of a full consciousness on the part of Jesus of his messianic and divine dignity. Many modern Christologists might dispute that. 
I don't know how we can. <laughs> anyway, I don't, and I believe St. Thomas didn't either. It seems to be the age-old belief of the Church, even though in modern times with developments in psychology and the human sciences, some do not think he fully understood because they use one text only the Father knows. But there's many, many texts where Jesus so shows extraordinary clairvoyance and knowledge. So the full consciousness of his dignity and his consciousness of his messianic role seemed to be present here, in, in my opinion, throughout the Gospel. It didn't come on him gradually. This is the way it was. So as will be seen, Matthew and Mark lessen the fear and trepidation when they render these things. Jesus is presented here, though, as being overwhelmed with anguish, despair, sadness, powerlessness. St. Paul in Philippians 2 talked about being self-emptied. That, that, that would seem to develop Mark's presentation in a doctrinal manner. Mark simply presents this historical fact in no way attenuates his circumstances, but simply presents the way Jesus looked at that terrible, tragic night. There is one very important doctrinal aspect, however, in Mark's treatment. The divine plan is being worked out. Our vocation is to be faithful to God's word. So this still leaves much to be discussed, and we'll continue this if you'll bear with us, and tune in the next time we have a, a lecture together. Well, and that, and that we definitely will. And, and there is, um, as you say, We've been pondering this together for uh, several lectures, a few hours. You have been pondering this for 60 years of your priestly life. I think all of us could ponder it forever and never discover mm -hmm. all of the nuances and insights mm -hmm. that are there to mm -hmm. be gained for us and, and also to help us to live our own lives mm -hmm. in greater docility. Mm -hmm. I've, I've thought sometimes uh, uh, the image that comes to my mind is dog walkers, you know, mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. there's so many dogs in our neighborhood mm -hmm. and you see some of them that just run away from their mm -hmm. from their master mm -hmm. and they can't be contained. Mm -hmm. Others just sit in one place mm -hmm. and have to be dragged by their leash. <laughs> but once in a while mm -hmm. you see a dog that matches its master's steps, mm -hmm. seems to read what its mm -hmm. master wants, mm -hmm. follows <clears throat> immediately every mm -hmm. tone of voice, every touch of the leash. And I think if we forgive the metaphor, this is the kind of dog we would like to be. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's really not a dog's world, but it does indeed. It's much more the mystery of the lamb, yeah. the desert eagle that flies yeah. over the desert sands and all of these help us in some way to appreciate what God has oh, done God for us all. Yes. So will you finish this up with a prayer, Father? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church. Pray for us. And St. Peter, please pray for us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And once again, Father, thank you for teaching. Thank you all for listening, and, and God bless you. God bless you, and we'll look forward to being together again for the next installment of Duke and Altum. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.